What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast where we talk all things MMA, and I hope you guys are having an amazing day. It's getting warm now, sunny day, great fights have just passed, great fights on the horizon. Just an amazing time, man. And there's a lot to talk about. First of all, let's start with the recap of the last fight night card. Amazing fight night card. I mean, like 90% of fight night cards perform so well, some of them even better than pay-per-view cards. It's always the unappreciated cards that perform the best. There's so many good knockouts, so many good fights. Fighters are there to prove themselves, chips on their shoulder. It's such a great experience. And specifically on Saturday night, we had two fights that lasted less than 30 seconds. Vicious knockouts. We had another one that ended in a minute and 11 seconds. We had back and forth technical fights. Even some no contests if you're into the controversy. You had everything on this card, man. Ryan Spann destroying Serkinov with a 1-2. He actually measured it off the first exchange. Serkinov was throwing a right hook and then fading out to his right side, Ryan Spann threw in a jab, dug himself in there, and I know he felt the range and the timing to throw the right hand afterwards. So when the exchange happened again, Sargon threw the right hook, Ryan Spann threw the jab and ended it with the right straight, which put out Misha Sorkinov. Span has some devastating power, man. And it makes that light heavyweight division a lot more fun. Dan Ige with the one-hitter quitter on Gavin Tucker. Just a straight right. He fired it out faster than Hooker could throw out his left hand. Just picture-perfect right cross with no wind-up at all. You don't even have to wind up your punch to deliver that kind of a knockout. It's all in the form. It's all in the timing. And... It's always the surprise factor. Can't wait to see what Danny Gay does next. He has a son coming on the way. Just an amazing night for the guy. You had Matthews Nicolau defeating Manel. Not ending the hype necessarily, but there was a lot of hype coming in there for Manel. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Cop or Cape. So I do think that Manel won the fight. I thought he won the second and third rounds. I think he delivered more damage. Definitely in the second round. And in the third round, I thought the knees to the body and knees to the head won him that round because they were the most damaging shots. Nikolov did land some really good strikes in that third round that could have given him it. You would really have to look back at the fight and focus on the stuff that Nikolov was landing on him. But the thing that hurt Manel entirely was his inactivity. If the guy just let his hands go, he would be a phenom in the flyweight division. First round came along, he did almost nothing in that entire round. He was getting kicked to the calf, left hooks to the body, into the head. He didn't have great reactions to those punches as well. He just had really good composure whenever he got hit clean. Nikolaus started landing left hands over the top. He started landing right hands over the top, especially in that third round. So I do think Manel has more potential. He's potentially the better fighter. It's just he has to be a little bit more active in his fights, man. Nikolaus was dictating the pace of the first and most of the third round. Second round, he got stunned, and it's the reason why Manel was able to keep that pressure on him for most of the round up until the end of it, where actually Manel lowered his activity the later half of that second round. Eric Andrews was putting it on Derek Stewart. I mean, this was the fight that most people thought was going to be just a complete barn burner. Knock off hard from both guys, just go at each other. And Derek Stewart was coming out there with a bit of a swagger, just moving around very loose, popping out jabs, taunting Eric Andrews until Andrews' left hand started finding home. And then he goes and knees him while he's on the ground. I don't know what's going on with all of these fouls. From the Petrion fight to the main event of that same card, Eric Anders. The one with Eric Anders, it was kind of weird to see because he was winning the fight. He almost knocked out Darren Stewart. He was on the way to probably finish him. Why throw the knee to the head? You can clearly see his knee is touching the ground. This is why the fighters need to understand the rules on what is a grounded opponent. It's so crucial because he just missed out on his win bonus and even a potential performance of the night bonus. Charles Jourdain versus Marcelo Rojo was an amazing fight back and forth. I mean, we had like seven punch combinations between each other. You had jumping off the cage ground and pound just to get around the guard from Charles Jourdain. Jourdain hyping himself up saying he's going to become a champion and comes out there and delivers when usually you hear that kind of stuff and they make it on a fail compilation. Honey Yaya furthering his record for most submissions in the bantamweight division. And Matthew Semmelsberger just putting the right hand on Jason Witt very similar to the way Dan Ige knocked out Gavin Tucker. So the car was just insane from beginning 
almost to the end. The main event was just so unfortunate. I made a breakdown about it. I don't know what else to add on to it. I mean, just so unfortunate for both guys. Leon Edwards made an error reaching forward at Blah Muhammad's eye, but the glove is there that extends his hand forward even more. The glove needs to go away. That's the biggest thing coming out of this. The gloves need to change. Pride gloves, even Bellator gloves. People make fun of Bellator, but at least they got their gloves right. If the UFC fixes their gloves, you are not going to see eye pokes that much anymore. Just bring on Trevor Whitman to the team. I understand they had this whole creator control disagreement when they first talked about the gloves, but I do hope they get something working together because Trevor Whitman makes excellent gloves. The guy could be like a multi-millionaire selling his gloves. That's how good they are. And I firmly believe that. But thankfully, Blah Muhammad is okay. He said his vision is coming back and there's no permanent damage. It looked like there was more damage to his eyelid rather than his eye. But he did say he couldn't see anything. It might have been the cut on his eyelid was bleeding into his eye and he couldn't see anything. Rather than the eye itself being injured. So thankfully that's the best news coming out of it. Blah Muhammad's okay and I hope they do the rematch. And if they're going to do the rematch, hopefully it's pretty soon if Muhammad's not injured. And I want to shout out one of the comments of my videos from Jid. This is an excellent idea. Let's do Ezra May Sterling vs. Patreon 2, Eric Anders vs. Darren Stewart 2, and Leon Edwards vs. Blah Muhammad 2 on the very same card. <laughs> that would be hilarious. And talking about Sterling versus Jan, there's more that came out of UFC 259. Well, the card did 800,000 pay-per-view buys, which is one of the most in recent years. It surpassed Adesanya's last fight with Paulo Costa, which I think did 700,000. And it just shows that Adesanya is one of the biggest stars in the sport. Not even John Jones really gets those numbers other than if he fights Daniel Cormier, where that will go to like 900,000, you know? Adesanya fighting someone like Paulo Costa, who's not a big name, getting 700,000. Then fighting Jan Blachowicz, getting 800,000. He's not fighting guys with big followings or where you could sell some kind of beef that they have between each other. Now, that is also to credit that you had Amanda Nunes on the card. You had Petrion versus Eljamain Sterling on the card. So there were three champions, but none of them are big stars at all. Nunes could have probably driven people to click that purchase button because the casual fans do know her name they know who she is so she may have been a little bit of a push forward for fans to actually buy the card but Adesanya was absolutely the main attraction and the beauty about all of this is with Jan Blachowicz defeating Adesanya and the fact that he was criminally overlooked it will now uncover the talent that he is the fighter that he is and hopefully a lot of those casual fans will cross over and start to watch his fights his next one with Glover Teixeira I really hope for that man because Guys like Jan Blachowicz, who've been in the game for so long, have been up and down, have finally claimed that championship and defeated multiple great fighters in a streak. Those guys deserve to be credited with some kind of star power. I mean, I want to see Jan Blachowicz make a bunch of money in this sport because he absolutely deserves it. And another thing about Adesanya now that we know, well, it turns out now from his coach that his plan was to fight the heavyweight champion right after this. He knew, everybody knew, that he would have the leverage to fight the heavyweight champion afterward. And he didn't care if it was going to be Stipe or it was going to be Nganu. He was up to fight either of them, it seemed like. Well, thankfully, that didn't happen because what we saw from Yablohovic is he probably would have got toyed with a heavyweight, especially from Stipe Miocic, who has that wrestling background. If Yablohovic is taking you down and holding you down to that level, what would have Stipe done? Someone who's bigger, stronger, much better wrestler, and a better boxer with a longer reach and more power. Yeah, that would have been devastating. Things, I guess, are meant to be, and gladly that didn't happen to Adesanya. So maybe losing to Jan Blachowicz is a blessing in disguise. And now we know that John Jones also would have beaten Israel Adesanya. I started with that narrative. I started with that Jones would be way too much for Adesanya. But then but then on the way, when I looked at some of Adesanya's takedown defense, how he fought Yoel Mero and Paulo Costa, the IQ that he brought to the table, I thought maybe there was a chance if his takedown defense was really good, he would have a chance to beat John Jones. But it's great to see as an analyst, as a fan, knowing now what Adesanya's takedown defense looks like, instead of speculating and contemplating how good it is, 
it does create some more accuracy in how he would be up against these bigger wrestlers. We didn't really know before. We were kind of taking guesses and speculating how good it would be, but now we know for sure. His takedown defense is nowhere near the level to stop John Jones or Stipe Miocic. His striking is always good. He could strike with pretty much anybody, other than maybe Nganu. But when it comes to the overall MMA game, there are levels of different aspects of it. And his wrestling and jiu-jitsu is just nowhere near that level yet. So now I go back to what I was saying previously. After learning from that fight, John Jones would have destroyed Adesanya. I think Stipe would have destroyed Adesanya. And I think Ngannou would have knocked him out. I think middleweight is the place for him to be. He's not a big guy at all. He walked into that fight at 200 pounds. He's smaller than middleweights. He's even smaller than some of the welterweights. In terms of weight. And frankly, at middleweight, he still seems pretty unstoppable. Right, We have to wait and see until that big wrestler comes out of nowhere or if Robert Whittaker actually uses his wrestling in the rematch. Given that he beats Paulo Costa, which I think we all expect him to do, Yablovich showed many things in that fight that Robert Whittaker could take advantage of in a rematch. Right, It's the same. It's actually what we've been talking about ever since their first fight. Ever since before that fight happened, everybody was talking about that Robert Whittaker would have to use his wrestling. He doesn't have to take down Adesanya with it, but if he does, that would be great. But just to mix up his striking a little bit, because as we saw with Jan Blachowicz, how he took down Adesanya was, he would throw punches to his head. Izzy would lean away, exposing his hips for a takedown. Whitaker could do the same thing. Exact same thing, actually. The way he was blitzing at Adesanya so heavily with, you know, jab right overhand, he could throw the jab, get Adesanya to lean back, then going under for the double leg takedown. The takedowns were great against Jared Kananir and Darren Till. But the bad thing about the middleweight division is, not a lot of those guys there can wrestle. Look at the bulk of the top 15. Most of them are strikers. That is why it's hard to see Adesanya lose in that division. When you have Whitaker, Kosa, Kananir, and Till in the top four, yeah, that's going to be a hard bunch to beat Adesanya given their styles. Even the best wrestlers of this division, like a Derek Brunson, not an amazing wrestler when you look at the whole landscape of the UFC, yeah, that division is going to have a tough time with Adesanya. And it's why styles make fights, man. And these two things we just talked about, so Adesanya's skills on the table are excellent, right? And his star power. Those kind of things can cause people to overestimate Adesanya or underestimate his opponents. And that's what you saw with the commentators on Saturday. Jan Blachowicz is actually pretty upset about it. So it took him a few days to look back and watch the fight. And once he did watch it back, he said that he noticed the bias commentating. He was specifically very upset with Daniel Cormier, who now calls him fake and stuff. I mean, he's calling Daniel Cormier fake for giving Jan Blachowicz some praise when it's in person and stuff. But when it comes to the commentating, he doesn't even focus at all what he's doing in the fight. I don't think Cormier was as bad as Joe Rogan. Rogan was definitely way worse. At least Daniel Cormier gave the second round to Jan Blachowicz when it was going down. Whereas Joe Rogan thought that Izzy was winning the first three rounds, which was pretty crazy. But all the commentators were focused on what Adesanya was doing rather than what Jan Blachowicz was doing. They're both talking about the feints and Daniel Cormier even doubled down on the whole fainting narrative. He literally said Jan was biting on a lot of those feints, but Adesanya was not capitalizing. Apparently, feints win you fights. Biting on feints means nothing when you're eating punches to the face. Who's winning if I faint on you, and then like three seconds after you punch me in the face? It's you, of course. You are going to be winning because you punched me in the face. It doesn't matter how I made you move and I made your leg twitch, made your hand move a certain direction. It only matters if you capitalize. If I faint on you, and you give me an opening on your left guard, and I hit you with a right hook, now that matters. Now that counts for something. But if you don't give me that opening and I ultimately just don't take it, it doesn't mean I'm winning. Reacting alone to feints doesn't mean you're losing. In fact, reacting to feints can even mean you're winning. It all depends how you're reacting, not just that you are reacting. There's ways you could react to feints that can actually get you on top of those exchanges. Evident, Jan Blachowicz. He was reacting very responsibly to the point where Adesanya couldn't even capitalize on his feints. That's the key here. You never get scored for feints. You get scored for attacks. Jan Blachowicz was reacting in a way that was not allowing Adesanya to land his strikes. He had impenetrable defense. 
It was the only time I've ever seen Adesanya had to deal with some kind of issue like that. If that's the case, I would have to say in those exchanges with the feints, Jan Blachowicz is showcasing even more skill than Adesanya is. It seems like DC didn't understand what was going on. That's the crazy part to look at this whole thing. DC still stands by to that argument. Man, if you go back and watch it, Jan was landing strikes on him while Adesanya was just fainting on him. What matters more here? It's pretty obvious. Jan Blachowicz's defense needed to be analyzed on a little bit more and talked about. Just clear out talked about. They never really talked about his defense from checking all the leg kicks pretty much to not line out on the capitalize after the feints. And he's like the only guy that's ever done that in MMA. How is that not a talking point? And number three, the punches he was landing right afterward. At the end of the day, you do not get points for simply fainting. You do not get points for setting up. For an example, look at basketball, right? Do you get points for teammates simply setting you up? Right, when they throw a ball up at the net and let's say you're going to dunk it or whatever. I don't know the whole terminology for basketball, but let's say they're setting you up. They throw the ball in the air for you to dunk the ball. Do you get points because your teammates set you up? Because they threw the ball in the air for you? Do they get points for that? Do they, does that mean they're a better player than the other team? No, it doesn't. It matters what you do with that setup. It matters if you actually make the ball and dunk it. But equivalent to what Adesanya was doing, the fact that he was fainting on Jan Blachowicz and wasn't landing strikes afterward, that's the equivalent of you setting me up the ball, I go to dunk it and I miss. Ultimately, what did that mean? Did I win the game because of that? Rogan's argument is pretty much saying the simple fact that Adesanya was fainting Jan Blachowicz means that he was winning the fight. Many of us, specifically the ones that probably had the fight on mute or were watching a lot more carefully and noticing the bias as it was unfolding during the night, we were all very nervous that this would have somehow impacted the scorecards. Because there was no way Jan Blachowicz lost that fight. When you look at the totality of the fight, there was no way that he would have fairly lost that fight. In the fight, Blachowicz was the better striker. He showed to be the better striker defensively. He showed to be the better wrestler. And he showed to be the better grappler. The only time they gave Jan Blachowicz any kind of credit in the fight was when he had down Adesanya. And he was getting into mount and landing punches on him. The only time. Because there was no way they can give Adesanya any credit in those scenarios. Now, I just want to say, I love Joe Rogan. I've been watching fights with Joe Rogan commentating for over 10 years, man. I've always loved Joe Rogan's commentating for so many years, but it is obvious he was way better back then than he is now. He was commentating every single card. He was on every fight night card, every pay-per-view. He was engraved into the sport a lot more than he is today. He pretty much has one foot out the door now with not commentating on fight nights anymore. He doesn't even commentate for all the pay-per-views anymore. And there's nothing wrong about that. It's almost the equivalent of a fighter who has one foot out the door. They're not going to compete as well as when they were in their prime, when they were fully absorbed into the sport. It's the same thing with commentating for Joe Rogan. There's aspects of the commentating where he's probably even still the best at when it comes to interviews, when it comes to the entertainment aspect, you know, when something crazy happens in a fight and someone gets knocked out or it's back and forth. Joe Rogan's really good at those scenarios. He's really good at making it even more exciting than it looks. He brings that entertainment aspect to the sport. And his excellence in that field can keep him around in the sport forever. But there probably needs to be more of a strategic placement for him. Not where there's a chess match of a fight or it's a technical fight going on. Because then you tend to hear stuff like what we heard with Adesanya versus Yablahovic, or here will happen with Habib and Eli Quinta. Various different fights, you see this sort of thing happen, where it's more of a technical fight, it's not as entertaining or exciting as, let's say, Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz. The oohs and ahs, the always hurt, that kind of commentating is what Jorgen's amazing at. But when it comes to the technical analysis of, you know, something that Michael Bisping can bring, or Dominic Cruz can bring forward, or Paul Felder can bring forward, that's where Jorgen tends to fall behind a bit. And even for Daniel Cormier, to be honest, Cormier is an excellent analyst, especially when it comes to wrestling. When wrestling is involved in a fight, there's no one better to hear about it than Daniel Cormier, 100%. In fact, Cormier is so important to the commentating that he's pretty much the only guy that understands wrestling in depth like that. Dominic Cruz is there as well, but there's no one touching Cormier when it comes to wrestling. 
No one even close. You got Bisping and Felder. They're both strikers. They're both kickboxers. And you can hear it in their commentating when wrestling is involved or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is involved. But the thing I like about Bisping and Felder is when that stuff's happening, they actually acknowledge that they don't understand certain things. That's amazing because it shows you that they are there to learn. When they admit where they don't understand a certain thing about a fight, it shows you that they are only going to get better. This is not the final product of Bisping and Felder. They are going to get much better in terms of wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu analysis. That is why Bisping and Felder are probably the best commentators on the team right now. I would actually say Michael Bisping, Paul Felder, and maybe Brendan Fitzgerald is the best commentating team. John Anik's really good. I have more of a Fitzgerald flavor going on. But John Anik's amazing at it. He's really good at it. Sometimes he'll give you some weird stats that kind of turn you off or make you like scratch your head. Such as, uh, I forgot what fight was going on, but he said that both the fighters that were competing are in custody battles for their children. And I don't know why we needed to know that, but that's the sort of stuff that comes out of John Anik sometimes. He's been doing it for so long. He has so much on his plate. I understand where he can throw all things like that and not really think about it. But yeah, Anik, Fitzgerald are both amazing for play-by-play. So I do think there should be more of a strategic placement for Rogan. Like, put him to commentate a fight that has uh, Francis Agano versus Stephen Miocic. The next pay-per-view card is excellent for Joe Rogan in terms of that main event. He needs to be there because something crazy is going to happen on that fight. But the Coleman event, which is Volkanovski versus Brian Ortega, if that turns out to be a chess match, maybe Rogan's commentating is not going to be the best for that fight. So the commentating has been a bit crazy as of late. It's not a big knock on Daniel Cormier, to be honest, because Cormier by himself is actually pretty good. Of course, like every commentator, they're going to have certain mess-ups, and they're not going to be perfect. I mean, nobody's perfect. Nobody knows everything about the sport. Daniel Cormier has shown to be a lot better by himself or with someone else than with Joe Rogan, to be honest, because when he's with Joe Rogan, he's significantly worse. They delve into this kind of a uh, casual narrative and they're kind of sitting back like fans. It's actually something Rogan has talked about before that he has the easiest job in the world when it comes to commentating because he's sitting back and watching as a fan and he's just talking about what he sees in a fight. Well, what he's seeing in a fight as of late hasn't sit well with a lot of fans because it drives a narrative against certain fighters and what a lot of people are worried about, it can even impact judging scorecards if the judges are listening to them. I don't know if they are, I don't know if they can, but that's a scary thought. Right, what if that fight went to Adesanya? Let's say the judges were listening to what Rogan was saying. That would have been really bad. And that may have happened in the past, we have no idea. But yeah, Rogan has this kind of wormhole to him or black hole to him where everybody around him kind of shares the same things he says. Besides Dominic Cruz at times, because the way Cruz is, he's kind of a uh, contrarian to a lot of things. He doesn't like to agree with a lot of people. He likes to give his own unique perspective on things. But when it comes to Daniel Cormier, who's been pretty much his partner to a lot of these events, he drags Cormier into a lot of things that he sees, right? And they kind of share the same thing, like they're friends and they're very casual about it. That could be great when it comes to fights that are just absolute barn burners and bangers and knockouts happening guys going back and forth not the most technical fight but when it comes to a technical fight where now the fans are a lot more focused on the technique and the details of the fight that's where you tend to see the commentating fall behind a lot in and then there's the whole thing about the judging criteria 10 eights people still don't understand how 10 eights are given I don't think the 4th and 5th rounds are 10-8. If anything, you could probably make a case that the 5th round was a 10-8, given that the damage that Jan started to deliver at the very end of the round when he was in mount, which also goes to show you that if the fight was any longer, Jan could have even finished that fight. 10-8s are not what they used to be. When you hear Dana and other people talk about, how was that a 10-8, and I don't agree with it. I also agree it wasn't a 10-8, but... 10-8s are not given now how they used to be, right? When Dana was saying that 10-8s are only given when you got destroyed in a fight, that's not how they are anymore. The, the rules have been changed for years now. 10-8s are a lot more lenient these days. You don't need to destroy and nearly knock on an opponent to get a 10-8. Now that will warrant for a 10-7. 
which I agree with way more. 10-7, 10-6, all these numbers have to be used, not just 10-8 and 10-9. 10-10, 10-9, 10-8, you should be going all the way down. All of those scores should be used in the sport. And not only that, and not only the judging criteria when it comes to the individual scores, but when you talk about, you know, Rogan, you talk about Daniel Cormier, you talk about even fighters, it seems like a lot of people don't understand the rules that have changed. It seems like a lot of people still don't understand the judging criteria at all. It's one of the easiest things to read. It's plain out and simple of how it describes judging. Damage is over everything. Octagon control and aggression is practically never going to win you a fight anymore. Those are pretty much irrelevant now. Damage, submissions, takedowns, those are really the only things that matter now. You're never going to go to octagon control. You're never going to go to aggression. That Those are never going to be scored in a fight anymore. And that's why draws are never going to be a thing other than from a point deduction. The way the rules are made now is for damage to always be a factor when it comes to judging. Even if I land just one big strike more than you, I win that round. That's literally how it's written out. It's a superseding criteria list where damage and submissions trump all, right? If I almost submit you in a fight, there's rarely anything you could do more than me. If I land the bigger shots, there's barely anything you could do more than me to win the round. If those are exactly equal, then you go to the next thing. And now we go to punch count, who landed the more strikes, not necessarily more damage, who landed the more strikes. Then you go to the next thing, who has the more octagon control and all that stuff. The rules are written so that if you cause the more damage, even if it's slightly more damage, you win that round. I actually like that part of the judging criteria, to be honest, because damage and submissions are the most important aspects of a fight. But yeah, the people who are commentating, the fighters, the guys who are actually involved in the sport directly, they really need to read those rules. And speaking of rules, the co-main event. Now, I think we're all in agreement that Aljamain Sterling definitely played up the whole situation. It wasn't that he wasn't hurt. Of course, that knee is going to hurt him, but he definitely milked the situation. He definitely played it up a bit. I don't think there's much of a debate to be had because he pretty much admitted to it. He literally said he sat down and didn't want to get back up because he knew what was going on and he knew what would have happened. But it's still not wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, when the stakes are so high, when there's so much on the line, and if he went the honorable way in this, got defeated and never saw a title shot ever again and never would be able to make that money ever again, Again, yeah, man, I don't blame him for this. I understand it completely. Like the argument I made before. Look what happened to Anthony Smith because he didn't do the same thing Eljo did. Where is he now? Eljo May Sterling did nothing wrong, really. Piotr Jan is the one that caused that whole situation to happen. He's the one that didn't understand the rules. And he talked about it a little bit more. He said he didn't even know anything what his coaches were telling him. He said watching it back, he now knows that his coaches were telling him to punch him. And his Russian coach was telling him to hit him. But he said in the cage he didn't hear what his corners were telling him at all. He said he thought Eljo's knee came up so he need him. Complete foul. That's all it was. It wasn't intentionally that he was trying to follow him. But it was intentional that he threw the knee and landed it. They're going to have a rematch and everything's going to be cleaned up. And we're going to see who the better fighter is going to be in the rematch. In the first fight, Petrion was the better fighter. 100%. I mean, when he's not even supposed to be out wrestling Aljamain Sterling and he's taking him down at will. Tripping him out so easily. And then I'll striking him, knocking him down, hurting him with almost every shot he landed. Yeah, Piotrion is a bad man. It's going to be really hard for Eljo to beat him. But the thing I don't like what's coming out of this is how Aljamain Sterling is reacting to things when it regards Henry Cejudo. It almost seemed like he tried to skip over Piotrion and have a fight with Cejudo. And I hope that doesn't happen. That would be really bad. But it seems like he's going to do the rematch. He says afterward he would like to fight Henry Cejudo. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely go for it. And now we know something else about his corner. Matt Serra was not in his corner, which was very strange. I don't know why he didn't have Matt Serra in a corner, but according to Serra, it turns out that Aljo replaced him with another coach that wasn't with him for a long time. He doesn't understand it. Nobody really knows why Eljo did that. But Matt Serra took that pretty hard. He's been with the guy for such a long time, pretty much since the beginning, not to be in there with him for his first title fight. 
I can see where Matt Serra is pretty hurt by that. Ray Longo is in there, but for some reason specifically, Aljo did not want Matt Serra in his corner. Ultimately, that's the fighter's decision. He could do what he wants, it's his career, but you can't help but feel for Serra. He thought of it just like a coach. Going into the whole thing, he didn't want to bring it up to Aljo because he understood that Aljo winning the fight is the most important thing. So much respect for Matt Serra not to delve into that whole thing and cause conflict in Eljo's head. Even though he's kind of hurt by this whole thing, he knows that it's more important for Eljamain Sterling to be clear-headed coming into this fight. Great respect towards Matt Serra. Now that it's all said and done, he says he's done cornering fighters. Hopefully that's not every fighter because if that's the case, he's so hurt by this Eljamain Sterling situation that he's not going to even corner his other younger guys coming into the sport. I think he might be overreacting then, right? I understand not cornering Aljamain Sterling if he wants to get back at him. I don't agree with that, but I can see where he will go that direction. But not cornering anybody because of this, that seems a bit far-fetched, to be honest. It's his decision if he wants to make it, but I know a lot of his fighters would really want him to be in their corner. And I wonder how that's going to impact Aljamain Sterling coming into the rematch. I don't think it's going to impact him that bad because he just had to deal with Metzer not being in his corner again. But maybe if they reconcile it and... Sarah comes back into his corner for the rematch. Maybe we see something else from Aljo. Maybe he fights better in the rematch. We never know. And we just got word a couple days ago that Tony Ferguson is coming back and he's going to be fighting Benil Dariush. I love this fight for both of them because they're both in a different trajectory right now. Benil Dariush is coming up. He wants to get into the top 10 and Tony Ferguson is on his way down. It seems like this is a great fight for Tony to rebound from against a credible opponent. And it seems like they might meet at an intersection. And this is great for Benil Dariush to enter through the gate and fight some of the top echelon of the lightweight division. But stylistically, Tony Ferguson does have a very good chance against someone like Benil Dariush. He's more powerful. He's longer. He's faster. He's more athletic. He has more volume. He's overall a better striker. His takedown defense should be good enough to stop Dariush's offense. But on the ground is where it's going to be a bit dicey for both of them. They're both extremely dangerous. I think if Tony Ferguson shows up the way he says he's going to show up, he should beat Benio Dariush and put a statement. But with his age and all the damage he has taken and how he competed against Charles Oliveira, I have no idea, man. You just can't know Tony Ferguson anymore. He's been training with other guys. He's training with Freddie Roach now. And maybe his boxing is going to progress. And I'm pretty sure Freddie Roach is going to have him spar, which is something Tony does not do that much. There's some big changes with Tony Ferguson coming into that fight. And I'm very interested. I'm very looking forward to that. But if he loses this fight, I think the era of Tony Ferguson is pretty much done. Nothing against Benil Dariush, but three losses in a row and ending it with someone like Dariush, who is not the same caliber as Justin Gaethje or Charles Oliveira, that would take Tony Ferguson completely out of the top tier of the lightweight division. And it brings him even closer to retirement. And let's go to the questions. And we're going to start with the most liked comments. And that's going to go to Chao Kong Teo. Thoughts on Dan Hardy allegedly getting fired by BT Sports. And do you think he will ever compete in the Octagon again? He didn't only get fired by BT Sports. He's also not working with the UFC directly. But there's two different reasons for that. For BT Sports, I guess it was because he has some heated argument with one of the employees. I don't know what that was all about. I don't know why he would get fired for arguing. But I guess it was the wrong place, wrong time. May have been pretty nasty. As we know, Dan Hardy is the outlaw. He's had a word or two for uh, Herb Dean during a fight and got a warning for that. But he said the reason why he's not working with the UFC anymore is not because the whole employee thing. He says it was a disagreement over some kind of opportunity. And he actually doesn't know the reason why the UFC let him go. I think it might have been from the argument thing, but we have no idea. 
We don't know many details, but Dan Hardy was a good part of both BT Sports and the UFC. I know he had the inside the octagon breakdown thing. Those are good, and it's kind of a bummer he's not going to be able to do that anymore. And he did even more phenomenal work for BT Sports. He had many of the great shows over there, and he's a student of the game. He's a super fan of MMA. So his work is not going to stop. He's still going to create content wherever he goes and whoever picks him up because someone else is going to pick him up. There's no way other organizations are just going to let him linger out in the void. But in terms of him competing in the UFC, I don't know. Because I know he was clear to fight after the commission didn't want him to compete because he was diagnosed with Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, which is a problem with the electrical system of the heart. And they were kind of afraid if he would have competed that the worst case could have happened. But he was cleared from that, I think somewhere around 2018. And ever since he's been talking about returning. I mean, I know he's in the USADA testing pool. He announced that years ago. And he keeps saying that he wants to fight this year. But I don't know when and I don't know against who. He keeps holding it back for the right opponents. But I don't know who that right opponent is going to be. He's called on Nick Diaz. He's called on some of the older vets of the game. He's smart enough to know not to fight some of the younger guys of the 170 and 155 pound divisions. He's just coming back for a good fun fight nothing about the title and I'm all in for that if they can put him up against a Nick Diaz that'd be excellent they're both around the same age both been out of the game for a very long time that makes for a perfect fight to be honest and maybe even Nick Diaz would be up for it I know Nick and Nate they don't have as much respect for the newer guys of the sport they have a lot of respect for the vets so that's a fight I could potentially see happening later this year it makes perfect sense and then we go to Thomas how do you think Surreal Gone does against these fighters? Really quickly, I don't want to go too deep into this because I want to get to other questions. Surreal Gone, I think, defeats Nganu. I think the footwork is just way too much. He's going to be able to position himself in different kind of angles that will get Nganu into disadvantaged positions. He'll bait out a lot of those power shots. His takedowns are also going to be a bit of a factor just to set up certain things. Generally, his kicks and movement are going to be big weapons against Nganu. But I will lean Surreal Gone. Now against John Jones, I got to go with Jones. This is a bit of an X factor because we don't know much about Jones at heavyweight. He's a big guy. He might be very slow. He might not even have the power. If he's slow and not powerful at heavyweight, he's going to have a tough time with everybody. So I don't really know. Let's say he's more powerful, just a little bit slower, just to level it out a little bit. And the skills that we know he possesses, I think he should be someone like Surreal Gone. I think he'll try to take him to the ground. The clinch is going to be huge for Jones from strikes to trips, disrupting that balance a bit. A lot of those leg kicks. And defensively, I think he will get away from a lot of Gone's shots. Lewis. I think he should beat Lewis, but Derek Lewis is every analyst nightmare. Just overall way more technical. The movement's going to be big. Even the takedowns are going to be there. So many weapons from Gone that greatly surpasses everything Lewis does. Alexander Volkov now. That's a good fight. That's a technical striking match. Oh man, that could really go either way. I would like to see some sort of draw. But if I lean someone, I might lean Surreal Gone. Given how plodding Volkov is and he is a little bit shorter with his punches. I think Gon's footwork will be able to bypass those kicks and land overhands over the guard. Stipe Miocic, I gotta go with Stipe. Takedowns are gonna be a big factor. The boxing defense is not gonna allow Gon to really land anything over the top. Kicks may be a big problem from Gon, but I think they could be caught by the takedowns. It depends on what Gon does in terms of baiting out some sort of reaction from Stipe. If he gets Stipe to lean back to pull on the punches, it does expose Stipe's leg a bit, and he doesn't focus on leg kicks when that happens. But if Stipe's moving forward and not allowing Gon to throw leg kicks at him, because he's always gonna be threatening with takedowns and stuff, I think Stipe should win. Next question is, how do you think Figueredo will do against a top 5 at Bantamweight? I'm going to go through this really quickly. So top 5, I'll say champion as well. I think he loses to Jose Aldo. I think he beats Cody Garbrandt. Depends which Cody shows up. He brings Cody into a war, he knocks him out. If Cody fights smart, he might beat Figueredo. I think he beats Rob Font. Takedown's going to be a big weapon. The power in the pressure is going to be a big weapon. I think Corey Sanhagen beats him. I think Pietro Jan beats him. And I think he beats Aljamain Sterling. 
And then we go to Gurman Klar. Is Robert Whittaker capable of implementing a similar strategy Jan did in mixing up wrestling in the clinch to defeat Adesanya in the rematch? Yeah, just like I said earlier, he can bait out some of those leans, go under for the takedown. Even if the takedown doesn't work, he rises to the clinch, separates with big, powerful shots, and the takedown threat is also going to get Izzy to react a little bit differently to his strikes. There's going to be more opportunities to land strikes over the top as Izzy starts to expect a lot more takedowns. Simply mixing up the wrestling increases Whitaker's chances tenfold. But the thing is, Robert Whitaker is not going to win because of wrestling strictly. He's not going to take down Adesanya and hold him on the ground. I don't think that's going to happen. Jan's strength and size was a big factor in how he was able to hold down Adesanya so well. The opportunities that come out of Whitaker's wrestling is the key factor here. It can take away a lot of Adesanya's head movement, right? If you take away Adesanya's head movement, a lot of those overhand rights become easier to land. And then we go to Who Am I? Islam Mahashev on a 7-win streak now. They will have to give him a top 10 next. Thoughts on him versus the top 10? I think he beats Paul Felder. Wrestling's too much. I think he dominates Dariush. Better striker and better wrestler. I think he holds down and shuts off that BJJ. I think he beats Dan Hooker. Takes him down. Controls him. Defensively very responsible against Hooker's recklessness. I think he puts Hava Dos Anjos in a wrestling clinic. Everywhere else, RDA is pretty capable of defeating Mahashev, but that wrestling is just way too strong. I think he beats Conor McGregor. Pretty much does similar to what Habib did to him, but a little bit more solid of fundamental defense. The shots are going to be there. He's very strong and fast. I think he will risk more submission attempts, even if Conor somehow gets on top of him, because Conor is a bit underrated when it comes to BJJ. I think even there, he will threaten with many submissions that Conor hasn't felt in a fight before. I think he beats Tony Ferguson. What Charles Oliveira showed against Ferguson is something that Makashev can do several levels higher. Not Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu necessarily, but I'm talking about the takedowns and top control. Thinking about this fight breaks my heart already. It just reminds me how we never got Habib versus Tony Ferguson. It makes it seem like Habib wants to make a point that he's so much better than Tony that he's going to send his right-hand man to defeat him. Michael Chandler. That's an interesting one because Chandler is very strong. He has really good wrestling. He's athletic. He's fast on his feet. That would be a tough one for Makashev right now. I think right now Chandler might beat Makashev. Given the fact that Makashev does not like to pressure opponents that much, so he doesn't have the cage to work with as much as Habib did. And Chandler is a guy who pressures the opponent backwards. So it's a tough one. Maybe there are opportunities to shoot him for that low single against Chandler's aggression. But if Chandler hits him one time, that fight's over. I will lean Michael Chandler, but I could be wrong on that one. But in the future, I got to see Makashev fight better opponents to really gauge where his wrestling's at because fighting guys like Drew Dober is not going to tell you much of how great his wrestling is compared to the top guys of the division who have really good wrestling. So it's kind of hard to assess it. If he could take down Chandler and hold him down, of course he's going to win the fight. It's just we don't know if he's at that level right now. Charles Oliveira. No, that's a hard fight. I'm going to go with Charles. Right now, I'm going to go with Charles. I think he's a better striker. He's more powerful. He's not as fast on the trigger, but he has the reach advantage. He has much better distance management. His submissions and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the most dangerous for Makashev to fight against. Yeah, I think Charles Oliveira is probably the hardest fight for Makashev. Justin Gaethje. I don't know. Again, it's like the same thing with Michael Chandler. I don't know how great Makashev's wrestling is compared to guys like Gaethje and Chandler. Because if he stays on the feet with Gaethje, he's going to get destroyed. So again, it's really hard to assess. Right now, I'll just say Gaethje. But in the future, I can see Makashev being more than enough to handle Gaethje. And then we go to Dustin Poirier. Now, that's an interesting fight. Because we know Dustin Poirier will dive in for the guillotine. And that would be a bad mistake against Makashev. Also, Poirier doesn't have the best takedown defense. He's not on the level of Gaethje or Chandler. But he has solid takedown defense. It's not bad at all. He doesn't have a wrestling weakness. But I think Makashev's wrestling is good enough to not only take down Poirier, but control him if he gets on top. His solid striking defensive fundamentals are there. So it's a tough one. This is a really hard one to call. You know what? I'm going to go with Islam Makashev. But that's probably the closest fight in the top 10. Then we're going to traffic jam. 
Are Polo Costa's best days already behind him? Does he have a decent shot at beating guys like Whitaker, Till, Cannoneer, and Vittori? No, I don't think his best days are behind him, to be honest. I think, how am I going to say this? I honestly think he isn't as good as people thought he was. He's so barbaric in the cage. He's not the most technical guy. He's more technical than the credit his critics give him. But he's nowhere near as technical as Whitaker, Till, and Vittori. The only guy that he has a really good chance of defeating in the top five is Cannoneer. Because the way Cannoneer approaches a fight, he stays in your face. He's a terrifyingly precise puncher, but he's there to be hit by Paulo Costa. He's more powerful than Costa, and that is ultimately another reason why I think Cannoneer can beat him as well. He has a much longer reach. He has a really good jab. Paulo Costa has a big weakness to an orthodox jab, and he's a big weakness to counter punches just specifically. So if you really look at Paulo Costa's whole resume, he has the win over Yoel Romero, but Romero has that wildness to him that allows guys like Paulo Costa to land. But when he comes across a technical fighter who sticks to a game plan, and isn't as wild as someone like Romero is, or as unhinged as Romero is, he's going to have a harder time landing anything on them. It's another reason why he had a hard time against Raya Hall, of all people. Raya Hall gave him a very hard time, who is not on this level, who is not on the caliber of a Whitaker, Till, Cannoneer, and Vittori. And Uriah Hall has a huge weakness to pressure. It's the way everybody beats him. Everyone beats him by just simply walking him down. He becomes a lot more gun-shy, and his defense is just not there. His defense is usually head movement and footwork. When you're pressed to the cage the way Paulo Costa will press you, those are not enough to get away from his power shots. And then look at his other opponents, USADA, Johnny Hendricks, Aluwali Bangboshe, and Gareth McClellan. So technically, I don't think his best days are behind him. I just think people are realizing how good he actually is. And then we'll go to Bob Bob. If Stipe beats Francis, how important of a fight legacy-wise would a fight between Stipe and Jones be? Two of the GOATs fighting one another. The only other fight I could see comparing would be DC versus Jones. It's not just the biggest legacy fight for both Stipe and Jones. I will go further and even say... Is the biggest legacy fight in UFC history. Think about it this way. The greatest heavyweight of all time versus the greatest light heavyweight of all time. When has that ever happened between two divisions? This is the equivalent of GSP versus Anderson Silva. The equivalent of GSP versus Habib Nurmagomedov. Anderson Silva versus John Jones. This is that level of legacy here. This, I think, would be Jones' biggest legacy fight in his entire career, and that's saying something. Looking at everybody he fought, Stipe is ahead of everybody. If Stipe beats Francis again... He is not only the greatest heavyweight of all time, he has blown out everybody in that discussion. Not even Fedor comes close. And he's a guy who defeated Daniel Cormier twice. That would be the biggest fight in John Jones' entire career. It's the ultimate legacy fight that he can have in his entire career. There's nobody right now in the past or in the near future that Jones will have to beat that's a bigger legacy fight than fighting Stipe. That's how big this fight is for both of them. And then we look at for Stipe Miocic. Fighting Jones is also the biggest legacy fight in his entire career as well. He has a bigger legacy compared to Stipe Miocic if you exclude the whole PED stuff. He's still fighting that same guy, right? So you can even include the PEDs and all the, accompl and all the accomplishments Jones brings to the table he's entering the octagon with all of that against Stipe it'd be the ultimate clash of titans the best of the best of the heavyweight division and the light heavyweight division the two greatest of all time in the respective divisions going at each other in their prime or in theory their prime because we don't know how Jones is going to compete at heavyweight if Stipe beats Jones after beating Ngannou he might even be the greatest fighter of all time regardless of weight class and not only that he'd be the biggest underdog who has ever done it Every fight, this guy's an underdog. Even against Ngannou in the rematch after he defeated him, he's even a bigger underdog coming into this one. He's an underdog against John Jones and the betting gods. Crazy. And he's two fights away from beating the greatest fighter of all time. It's kind of sad for John Jones' legacy because even if he beats Stipe, that PED cloud floats over his head. It would always be there. Because it seems like for the majority of his career, at least in theory, he could have taken PEDs that entire time. 
And even for the Stipe fight, we have to focus carefully if he's going to pop in that one. Do you know what would make it even greater if Stipe beats John Jones? If John Jones pops and he still loses that fight. I mean, it'd make it even harder to put GSP above Stipe Miocic. Some will still argue that. I can probably still see GSP being greater than Stipe, even if Stipe beats Jones and Jones pops for steroids or something. But man, they're right next to each other at the top. I honestly think Jones will probably beat Stipe Miocic, but... It's hard, man. I would love to see that fight. And then we go to D. Shiznit. How many points of strength and charisma does Jan's rope give him? He maxes out in strength and charisma. I don't know what that rope does to him, but it's like magic. Hey, man, if he's ever done using it, he can pass that down. If it just magically enhances you, I think everybody would love that. Another question by Germán Klar. Seems like everyone likes your questions. All jokes aside, how do you think Kevin Lee versus McGregor goes? I honestly think a focused Kevin Lee with a wrestling heavy game plan can give Connor a lot of problems, especially since he has all the qualities Connor has struggled against in the past. Good wrestling, long reach, tall. Well, he's not that tall. He's actually 5'9", but uh, very long, extremely long. I think he has the biggest arm reach to height discrepancy out of every fighter in the entire UFC. He can keep a jab on Connor, but it's a big if that Kevin Lee is focused in a fight or not go crazy when things are going right. Because when things are going right for him in a fight, he usually drops the ball. It could be when he fought Tony Ferguson, got him to the ground, actually stunned him in the first round, and then went crazy with the ground and pound and gassed himself out. He also did have staff coming into it, but the tremendous amount of output he threw at Tony Ferguson with the ground and pound shots was a bit excessive, and most of those did not even land. And then you had Charles Oliveira, he's actually landing shots over the top and then just goes in for a not desperate, just overexcited takedown and gets submitted with a guillotine. The only time he had success in that fight was in the third round, started landing shots, and then just blew it by going for the takedown. The last thing he should have done against Oliveira. So can and Kevin Lee will lose to Conor McGregor because something like that's going to happen. He's going to throw some big shot, wind up on him, and get countered for it after being successful with some stuff. But a composed Kevin Lee, the one that doesn't really exist, has all the tools and attributes to beat Conor McGregor 100%. He's so strong. His wrestling's so good. His Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is top-notch. He has a good jab. He's striking his game better, although he still has many defensive holes in his game. Evidence from his RDA and LI Quinta fights, but absolutely he can beat Conor McGregor. In fact, the focus Kevin Lee can beat most guys in this division, but... Not everybody's perfect. Then we go to Schlongface McGee. Who would fare the best in the current 205-pound division? Rashad Evans, Rampage, Shogun, Griffin, and Chuck Liddell. None of them would deal that well, but who would deal the best? Chuck Liddell would probably deal the worst, given how defensively irresponsible he was. I mean, his chin was always open. His chin was pretty much his primary defense. That is not going to deal well when he's eating shots by Jan Blahovic or Dominic Reyes, or Yuri Prochaska, or Volkan Uzdemir. Like, we got some heavy hitters in this division compared to when he used to fight. It's hard to pick one or the other, but I say Rashad and Quentin Jackson are the best out of the bunch right there. For different reasons, I side with Quentin Jackson being more effective than everybody else. Given how much more responsible his defense was, how powerful he was, how strong and big he was, he can be a bit one-dimensional in his approach. He has a more boxing-oriented style or a brawling style. He has devastating counter punches, good counter hooks off of deflecting. It's hard to hit him to the head clean, but due to that, he has a bad weakness to leg kicks, especially that side kick to the knee that John Jones kept landing on him, and he could not figure out how to defend it. His takedown defense wasn't bad at all, but it's a good thing that most of the guys in this division are not wrestlers. He had an amazing chin too. The only one that might have had a better chin than him would probably have to have been Chuck Liddell, maybe. Maybe Prime Chuck Liddell had a better chin, but Rampage was the best boxer out of all these guys. 
He was one of the toughest out of all of them. He had better fundamental defense than all of them, especially more than Chuck Liddell. Chuck Liddell was the least defensive, and he was probably the scariest counterpuncher out of all of them as well. The thing about Rashad Evans is he's so fast, he has a double leg takedown, and he has that big overhand right. He could bind the double leg with the overhand right very smoothly, but he lacks a lot of variety in his offense. Big overhand right, sometimes a left hook, and a double leg takedown. You don't see much else from him. He's not that great in the clinch, does not strike in there that much. He doesn't really kick, he doesn't throw knees, doesn't throw elbows. And the big thing going against him compared to someone like Rampage is the fact that he's so small. I understand he fought heavyweight before in The Ultimate Fighter, and he's fought big light heavyweights in the past, but they're very different today. The skills are so much different than the heavyweights he fought in The Ultimate Fighter. He'll not be able to just use his technique and skills against the guys in light heavyweight today, because when he fought the heavyweights, he was a lot more skilled than them. He is not more skilled than the light heavyweights today, so the size is going to play a huge factor against him. Then we go to Alex Alex. Figgy vs. Petrion who wins, I go Petrion. Ortega vs. Oliveira, I'll go with Oliveira, although that's a very close fight. Romero vs. Rumble, I'm gonna go with Yoel. Uncle Live vs. Izzy, I'm gonna go with Uncle Live. Geishi vs. Chandler, oh man, I can't wait for that fight. I'm gonna go with Geishi, although I can see Chandler winning as well. Volkanovski vs. Pitbull, I'm gonna go with Volkanovski, but I keep seeing Pitbull knocking him out for some reason. Gilbert Burns vs. Colby Covington, I'm gonna go with Gilbert Burns. Then we go to Matt Sedberry. Who are your favorite fighters to watch in each division? So heavyweight, I will say Francis Ngannou. Light heavyweight, I will say Magomed Ankalaev. Middleweight, I'll say Israel Adesanya. Welterweight, I'll say Jorge Masvidal. Lightweight, I'll say Conor McGregor. Followed by Tony Ferguson as a close second. Featherweight is Zabit Magomed Sharipov. Bantamweight, ah oh man, he may not be the best. He may be out of his prime. But Jose Aldo, I still love watching Jose Aldo fight. I don't care if he's over the hill. I'm more excited watching his fights than even the champion. Flyweight, oh, Davis Figueredo by a mile. He's one of my favorite fighters in the UFC right now. And then the women divisions, featherweight, bantamweight are both Manda Nunez. Flyweight is Valentina Shevchenko. And strawweight is Rose Namajunas. Then we go to Anson Wu. When will Jan start getting people's respect? Seems like he was mad at Dana because he thinks they set him up with Izzy, hoping he will lose. Yeah, as much as people want to deny that, there had to have been a plan. I mean, it's smart business-wise. Of course, the people behind the scenes are going to want Adesanya to win this so they can set up bigger money fights down the line. I don't think there's any businessman that's thinking, man, I hope Jan wins this fight because I think he would do bigger numbers than Izzy versus Jones or Izzy versus Stipe. I mean, when Izzy's doing like 700,000 plus pay-per-view buys, of course, there's plans for the guy. It's the same thing that happened with Conor McGregor. It's a reason why they allow Conor to go up a division and fight a champion when they only allowed that to happen one time ever in their history when BJPen wanted to fight GSP. But the reason that was allowed was because the lightweight division was so shallow. Light heavyweight today doesn't even compare to how lightweight was back then. It was extremely shallow. There were very few fighters in that division. I think with this win, Jan has gotten everybody's respect. People will look at him as the rightful champion. He's the guy to beat at light heavyweight. And it's great to see that people aren't asking or demanding for him to fight John Jones. I really don't see that anywhere. And that is great for Jan Blachowicz. It means that there's focus on his own legacy rather than him chasing for someone else's. People want to see him fight Glover Tashira and get this division rolling. So I think with that win, he will have people's respect now. And this next question dives right into his fight with Glover Tashira. We go to Cuba. How do you see the Polish powerhouse doing against Glover? It's a good fight. It's a really good fight. I mean, he can knock out Glover. He's a much better striker. He's more powerful. He's more youthful. In chin and in age. Glover's chin has completely deteriorated, but he's tough enough. His heart is still there for him to weather the storm, get the fight to the ground, and dominate through his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's going to be better on the ground than Jan Blachowicz. His takedowns are also very strong. The last time we saw Jan Blachowicz on his back for a long period of time was when he fought Alexander Gustafsson, and that was alarming. When you're getting taken down by Gustafsson and held down to that extent, that does not look good going to a fight with Glover Teixeira. Now, that fight was a long time ago, but it's the last time we actually saw that from Jan Blachowicz. 
Glovich was a black belt back in that day too. So I do think if it goes to the ground, Glover is definitely going to have an advantage. If it stays on the feet, Jan's definitely have an advantage. It's a clear-cut victory depending on where the fight takes place. And knowing about Jan's takedown defense, it's not the best, it's not bad at all, but it's definitely vulnerable enough for Glover to get him to the ground. His hips aren't as strong compared to some of these other guys in the light heavyweight division. And Glover has a laboring, powerful grip of a double leg. I think he will be able to get Jan down in the fight. The beginning of the fight is going to be so crucial when it's determined who is the one pressuring who because if Jan is pressuring Glover backwards, Glover is not getting him to the ground. Jan is way too intelligent to bum rush forward nowadays and allow Glover to get in on his hips. He's very good at keeping distance, very good with his kicks. Check left hook is going to be a major weapon and the jab is going to establish a lot of things for Jan. It's going to set up many strikes specifically from his hands. It could be a simple one-two. It could be a jab pullback left hook. It could be a jab left body kick. Glover is so slow these days. It's going to be hard for him to catch Jan unexpected. So I do think Jan beats him, but I'm not counting out Glover Teixeira. Evident from his last few fights, you do not count out Glover Teixeira. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to like, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel if you listen to the audio version of this. And I'll see you guys in the next episode, which will come out very soon.